What's up, everybody? Welcome back to a new episode of the Antler Up podcast. We are on episode 65. And on today's episode, I sit down with and have a conversation with Spartan Forge's founder, Bill Thompson. And before we get into the episode, Bill was gracious enough to offer our listeners a 25% discount code at checkout. So head on over to SpartanForge.ai and you're going to get there and you're going to see the Outfitter app that he has going on. So use code AntlerUp and save 25% on checking that out. So in this episode, Bill shares his story of how and why he started Spartan Forge and the nuts and bolts of the application to find and pattern deer movement better and fill more tags. I hope this one helps you out because Bill has been doing this a uh, ton of research for over, man, I don't even know how many years, but it's been a long time and he definitely shares some great information. So sit back, enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for the support and antler up. Before we get into the episode, I just want to thank our partners over at OnX. I want to talk about the tracker feature. This is something that we use during scouting uh, while we're hunting and also even going around shed hunting. So you just hit that tracker button and it's going to follow you like a GPS as if you're out on a run. And it's going to follow you for everywhere you covered. So when you're finding sheds or when you're out scouting, you could drop some more waypoints while you're at it. It's easy to use. And, you know, you could obviously share those trackers with your friends or family, whoever that you uh Need to, need to uh, share that with. So check out onyxmaps.com and download the number one hunting app. So let's get into this episode. Thank you, Bill, for coming on. Enjoy this one, everybody. And use code antlerup at uh, spartanforge.ai at the end and uh, save yourself some money. Check it out. Antler up. You know, we're live. We're back for another episode of the Antler Up podcast. And on today, tonight's episode, I'm joined by Bill Thompson with Spartan Forge. Bill, man, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm really excited to have you on. I know I talked to uh, my buddy Taylor Chamberlain, who's part of your pro staff, uh, you know, this year and everything like that. And uh, like we when we first text through uh, on Instagram, it was kind of like I was already thinking about you. And if we kind of got the date scheduled down, so I'm excited to have you on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Taylor's great. Um, I appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, I'm excited to uh, you know get into the nitty gritty here on the podcast. Absolutely. Well, Bill, talk about because you have such a unique idea uh, with your app and what you're developing, and it came from under uh, unique circumstances as well. Like, just talk about that quickly before we get into the the meat and potatoes of your app of what you're developing. Sure. So uh, I'm a military officer. I retire in July. Uh, I'm a chief warrant officer, um, and I guess the best way to describe the chief warrant officer's role is uh, he's kind of like, I guess, one. I always use the school analogy, and the best school, I think school analogies work because everyone obviously has gone to, to school, so it kind of works that way, and that um, your your soldiers are kind of like your students or your low enli lower enlisted guys. Then you have your teachers who are like your, your NCOs, and then you have like people who develop curricula. And, and say like, hey, here's the thing that, you know, based on what the school board votes or whatever, somebody writes a curriculum. Sometimes it's teachers in other places, it's a separate job. Um, and they, the, you know, standards and testing and stuff like that. Those are kind of the warrant officers. Um, they're, they're responsible first for, I guess, like the technical, you could call it the technical readiness of the unit. And then you could also call it the technical preparedness of the unit. Um, in some units that matters more than others. Uh, if you're just like in a straight supply unit, it's more important to have things ordered. But if you're like in a military intelligence unit, which is the kind of units that I was in, or if you were in a combat arms unit, um, you know, you want the latest and greatest gear and you want to make sure everyone's trained on it. 
that's kind of the role of the warrant officer. And then your regular officers are kind of like your superintendents or principals. They're, you know, the people who are ultimately responsible for everything but aren't really doing the day-to-day kind of stuff. Um, so that's, I guess, a, a good warrant officer analogy for anyone who's been in the military. They also know we're long-winded um, and we're hardly everywhere that people want us to be. It's kind of a perennial joke in the warrant officer community. So, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of long and short for my military career. I've been doing this for about 21 years. Um, basically in every discipline in the army, I've served in, you know, armored, um, armored units, uh, cavalry units, military intelligence units, special operations units, special forces units, um, regular, you know, regular green army units, um, you know, strategic tactical units, just you name it. And I've served in them. Uh, I've been in for 21 years and, uh, <clears throat> along the way, one of my responsibilities was, I, I guess you could think about it as, um, you know, after I, I've done a few combat operations during those combat operations, um, you see kind of holes in the way that business gets done and things that, you, that the unit needs to prosecute the mission more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I kind of came back, I stepped into a few roles where I was responsible for the development of tools that were going to be getting fielded soldiers. And by tools, I mean, like, uh, uh, I got in our realm, it's kind of like, uh, we call it SEMA now, mm-hmm. but it's a fancy way of saying like cyber and SIGINT. Signals intelligence and then cyber is, you know, on net operations that the U.S. military does. So as I was developing these tools over the past 20 years or so, well, really, I started developing about 15 years ago. Um, every time I would develop something, I would think to myself, there's probably an analog here in hunting. Uh, a lot of times throughout my career, well, I started hunting seriously maybe about 10 or so years ago. It's a little more, a little less. I always get it screwed up. But um I should say hunting seriously. I've been hunting since I was a child, but it was more like a once a year type of thing with the uncle or friends or whomever. And then I really got serious while I was in the military. And I think that's a common experience for a lot of military people because uh, the, you know, hunting kind of provides that same, you know, you know, Shakespeare that, you know, the readiness favors, uh, or I can't remember the quote, but the readiness is all. So, you know, um, that pays off in the military and it pays off in hunting. So if you're willing to go out there and do that, you know, scouting and, and hunting or scouting and prep preparing in, in the military, it's, you know, time, range time with your rifle or your equipment yep. to make sure you know it inside and out, you'll do more favorably um, in the actual situation. So um, anyway, I noticed these analogs and about six years ago, seven years ago, um, so a friend of mine really pushed me into kind of like, you should take seriously these ideas that you've cooked up. I have this green book that I keep um, everywhere I go in my military career. It's kind of just like a, a basic uh, memorandum book. And I've actually filled a few up. I've got another one here as well um, that uh, I fill up with ideas. And uh, every time I think something up, you know, I just write it down and then think about it later. Then I kind of think about, I kind of gauge it for its, you know, is it viable? Is it something that we could actually build? is the technology out there to do it? And then could, what could I do it for the cost that I would need to? And I do that for the military and I do it for hunting. So I had a bunch of these ideas, some buddies of mine, um, you know, encouraged me, said, you know, these are great ideas. You should really go after this. And then, um, you know, I kind of developed the pathway and then that kind of leads us to where we are today. So it's kind of a long explanation, but as I said before, we can talk as <laughs> warrant officers. So, yep. uh, and it's been a long time coming. So, 
Well, good, man. Congratulations, and thank you for your service. And uh, it's kind of neat. I'm wearing actually my HHA USA shirt, and uh, I'm sure you know what Chris Ham is doing with HHA USA and some great things with the military. And uh, I never served. I had my grandfather was in the Navy for, oh, man, uh, 30 years, and uh, he, he it, it that's who raised me basically, uh, who I live right. with. So it, it's instilled with me of, of that military lifestyle. And I have major respect for anybody that, that, that represents that. So thanks man for, for doing everything that you've done for us as, for as, as a country. Yeah. Well, thank you for your patriotism. Um, you know, we're an all volunteer force and a lot of countries try to assert their dominance in the world by having the largest force. But I think our force is uniquely postured because we're a volunteer force. Mm-hmm. And I say that all that to say, I think it's more important to have patriots than it is to have service people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. we can have a small service force that's really dedicated and, and uh, extremely proficient. Like I talked about before, but none of that's possible if we don't have people who are patriotic and willing to support those endeavors. Um, and, and it seems to me that those people are becoming fewer and far between. So yeah, thank crazy. you for your patriotism and thank you grandfather for his service, yeah. um, for his service. And uh, yeah. Awesome, man. Well, dude, I, I love just how, how you're, you filled up those green books with just ideas and, you know, it's not just necessarily for hunting. You're going off of things for the military as well. And just going from there and, you know, here we are with Spartan Forge, which, you know, right now I feel like the hunting community has so much to offer for, you know, as far as technology goes, you have bows that are the most efficient that they ever are. Your, your clothing and gear is the best that it's ever been, you know, now, now you start to see these little little things like on on our phones, right? Like you have yeah. Onyx, you have all these other you know mapping services. Uh, a buddy of mine that lives down the road, we had him on the podcast. He has something called Trophy Tracks, which is just a a logging. Like what do you see in the field? That's all that yeah. that that app is. Um, you know, now you have yours, which is basically you know in a nutshell predicting deer right. Like so, yeah. where, where could we go and get into that that specific area to harvest a deer um yeah. you know so go ahead man like talk about like what spartan forge is and uh you know i know you're gonna have a presentation so if you want to talk first and then get into it like whatever you see yeah. fit man this is this is the floor is yours basically yeah and uh please you know as i veer off which i'm going to do just you know <laughs> hit me over the head every once in a while yeah. you know, on, on center and also we need to talk about chris ham later on this podcast we'll do um, we're partnering up to do some great stuff that I'll talk about later on the po- on the podcast. But um, <clears throat> uh, regardless, um, Spartan Forge was kind of built out of um, when I first got into the advising community where we were kind of advising. There's an organization in the military called DARPA. Or I shouldn't say the military, the Department of Defense. And DARPA's cha- charge is kind of to build um, build capability for the U.S. military and the government that kind of pushes the envelope from a technical perspective. Okay. So you, you could think about something like, I always use the analogy of a space shuttle, but I've used it on other po- podcasts before. So I hate doing it, but it's the only thing I can think of right now I'm on the spot. So, uh, you know, one thing might be a space shuttle, like, Hey, we're trying to get, you know, maybe we're trying to land up, go to Mars. And uh, we, we find out when we get there that, or we you know as we're, as we're doing the analysis that, there's a unique part to the, uh, there's a unique, uh, the atmosphere has unique requirements where, you know, landing on Mars and that atmosphere is really tough on the Teflon tiles that are on the outside of the space shuttle. So what DARPA might say is, 
you know, we're going to make a space shuttle that not only can get to, or a space shuttle tile maybe that not only can get to Mars, but can get there repeatedly, you know, eight, nine times. You won't have to replace it and it's reusable and all of these types of things. They don't really deal in that area, but I feel like it's something everyone understands. So what they'll do is they'll go after developing this space shuttle, like this whole space shuttle. And it'll be like, they'll have to come up with a new engine. They'll have to be new microprocessors. There'll have to be different ways that we do compute. There'll probably be some kind of machine learning that needs to be integrated into it to make it as efficient as possible. And the goal of DARPA is like, if, if they actually build the space shuttle and it works exactly how they wanted it to, it's a failure for them. And the reason it is a failure is because they didn't set the bar sufficiently high enough. In other words, they, they kind of were trying to do what, what could already be done by someone else out there. Right. Um, and really what the goal is, is to get about 80% there on that space shuttle. And then, because if, if you got all the way there, like I said, you didn't push the envelope enough, but if you got 80% there, right. <clears throat> inevitably they had to, they had to build things along the way. Maybe something like a revolutionary microprocessor or something, or like I talked about those tiles in the space shuttle. Right. Like that new type of Teflon might become that, that got, that got you guys to Mars or someone in Mars and allowed that space shuttle to go back and forth a lot might have useful applications somewhere else outside of that space shuttle program. So okay. the goal is really to create these like spinoffs, you know, as I understood it, maybe it's changed or whatever, you know, some DARPA guy might get on here and say, <laughs> well, actually we're doing it this way now. But you know, what my, my context from 10 years ago was get 80% of the way there <clears throat> Um, and then whatever we get useful out of it kind of spins off and we use, there also are programs where they're trying to field what they're building. In other words, bring it to the, to the warfighter. but a lot of their grandiose stuff, they don't see it as a failure. Or in fact, they see it as the, as the end state, if they can just get those spinoffs out of it. So, um, <clears throat> while I was working there, a, a lot of the, the focus at that time was kind of pushing the, the envelope is a concerned machine learning and um, what we call in the military on net operations, which would be a, th- a way to think of it would be like ethical hacking. Okay. Like, you know, if you know that the, you know, Koreans are going to shoot a missile at us, how do we hack into a system that they might have that would allow us to shut that missile down before it gets sent. Right. Right. That's kind of like a core competency for the cyber. And that's just a hypothetical situation. That's not actually, you know, something I've worked on, but, um, so as we were in there, the problem with on-net operations is there's a vast amount of information. So when there's a vast amount of information, you need a way to kind of break that all down and have a machine do it and then make it so it's human readable. It can't just be machine readable. So there are these intelligence programs that I got into where they're basically trying to mimic reasoning processes that a soldier might use as they're sifting through data um, so that you know, when you like you or I could easily look through like a page of data, but when we're talking about teraflops of data, like trillions of pieces of data, that's not, not something a human can do. So that was one of the programs that I kind of started on and they got me interested in machine learning. And then I went in and, you know, got some education as it related to that. Um, my background in the military, was actually, um, as I said, signals intelligence, but then I kind of gotten into to the engineering disciplines. But from there I went to machine intelligence and artificial intelligence. So as I was building these things, my, my, my initial thought was, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to automate an instinctive reasoning process that a human might use when they're now, anal- when they're doing analysis to, to, to make an action, I guess is the best way to say it simply. And I'm, I'm sorry if it doesn't sound simple, I'll try to make it simpler. No, no, you're um, good. 
so my, my first thought was if I were to take a bunch of deer cameras and a bunch of sensors and put them out in the field, um, and then have the weather and all of the peripheral and environmental data then I could take all of that and train a machine. When I first started doing this, the only place to do that would be in like a program called MATLAB, which, uh, was cumbersome. It's great in some respects and other respects, it's pretty cumbersome. Um, and what we started, what, what we started doing was training using that data, training the, the neural networks using that data that you would find on a, uh, from a deer camera or from a weather vane. Um, so what I did was I went on some online websites. I got a whole bunch of um, uh, different types. Well, at the time they were, I think they were, well, these days you'd call them like a Raspberry Pi, but I was actually using Edison's as well back then. And they're just basically small computers on a board. And I put together some cameras and I got some, uh, um, you know, I forget the term, but basically they, they sense vibrations. They were seismometers, basically. Okay. Okay. Accelerometers is what they were called. Yep. Accelerometers. And then I wired those up as well. <clears throat> and, I, and there were these spots on my mother's property in North Dakota where you would every year you'd apparently there'd be scrapes in like these certain areas, or there'd be rubs on these trees in certain areas. Yep. And it was a very easy way for me, instead of paying for a camera to put on every one of those things, <clears throat> I would put these seismometers on these trees and on the, in these scrapes, I'd cast them. So they were in, inside of rocks and then I have a little antenna sticking out of them. And I basically wired this whole property up and then I put a few cameras on there as well, maybe five or six cameras. <clears throat> and I think I got to a point where I had maybe 30 or 35 sensors on this property and all of them were wirelessly reporting information back to my mother's garage where I had a small windows surface laptop running. And uh, it was basically compiling all of these data and then I'd send it back through AWS. And then what I would do is I would start crunching the numbers on the data and try to get like an idea of when I thought certain deer were going to be showing up on certain cameras and doing that kind of prediction. The problem with that, um, right, is that you have like a, you have a, you're trying to train a model using something where it's heavily relying on A, the camera's functioning, B, that the animal didn't walk behind the camera in front or in front of it, or C, that uh, you place those sensors in the right spot, right? There might be a great deer trail on that property where I didn't know where the sensor, I didn't know where the data was maybe being uh, generated the most. Maybe there's a trail I missed. Maybe there's a scraping area I don't know about, right? Right. So even though I felt like I knew that property pretty well, so that was kind of like the, the problem with that neural, that first iteration of a neural network. It did predict pretty well, but it didn't predict super well. It could have been better. But anyway, I went to the University of Auburn and was talking to a doctor there named Steve Ditchkoff. And he was kind of the first guy I reached out to. And I basically said, hey, I've, you know, I've wired up this property. I've had this, all this data. You know, it's observational. None of this has been like through peer reviewed or anything like that. It's just something I set up in a, you know, on a farm. <clears throat> and he thought it was very interesting. And then the idea that I had when I approached him was I knew they had done a bunch of collar GPS studies. And basically what the collar GPS studies would allow me to do is remove that deficiency that I had talked about before. Right. So now instead of relying on a camera, <clears throat> I had a collar GPS sensor on a buck that was monitoring his every movement. Some of them were very high resolution where they were taking <clears throat> data points every 15 minutes. And then some wow. of them were an hour, some of them were three hours. So <clears throat> what you had here was 
I would throw, I would always throw out the data from like the first three days from when they put the collar on the buck, because you never know if they're acting erratic or they had an amount of human influence and and I'd wait for their patterns to normalize. And I would start training these neural networks. And, um, you know, I should, I should say, um, I I partnered with two other guys as well. And Jimmy, uh, the other guy that I worked with Jimmy on the, on the company really was much better at this than I was. When I brought him on, he was able to do a much better job than I was, especially on my earlier work. Um, My earlier work was mostly like regression models or the simpler way to say it would be like just calculating percentages of when they were going to show up in a certain place. You know, he, uh, Google came out with a program a couple of years ago called TensorFlow that allowed at scale um, artificial intelligence training. So it became much easier than using like that old stuff like MATLAB. And uh, we started training those models. And I think we got our first functioning model like 18 months or two years ago, maybe. And I, what I mean by functioning model, it's always been functioning. <clears throat> but our, our stat, our, what we thought was the minimum viable product from a predictability standpoint was like 60%. Okay. So in other words, this thing had to know 60% of the time what the deer were doing. <clears throat> and if the model couldn't get better than a coin flip, right? Right. Then it, maybe their deer were too random. And, and there wasn't a way to derive pattern out of movement data, but that didn't end up being the case. <clears throat> you know, we got, we're much at much better now. We know we're eclipsing 70%. Um, and that's also across six buckets instead of just like two or three buckets, which is where we started. And what I mean by buckets is just like how many possible outcomes there could be. Right. So um, the model now can predict across six um, buckets and the buckets are, um, are they going to be in their core areas during movement? or during daylight hours, are they going to be in their transition areas during daylight hours? In other words, should you, should you be hunting like a scrape line, leaving bedding instead of hunting the bedding, or should you be hunting a rub line that, you know, a particular buck likes to frequent or delicts, you know, go through and, and do a licking branch, or could they be in their full range? In other words, that would be characteristic of a day where you're driving somewhere and you see 30 deer in a field at 12 PM. Right. And you're just like, like what got the deer in the field? at 12 PM on that day versus, you know, every other day of the year where I've never seen here in this field. <laughs> right. So that, and then the other three buckets are, um, the type of pattern that they are uh, engaging in. So pattern is heavily influenced by things like cloud cover, um, wind direction, wind velocity or speed. Um, and, and basically what that is, if, if you know where a buck's core area is, um, how he's going to leave that area is almost always dependent on it first his nose and then his eyes. Okay. So he wants to be able to see in front of him as he's leaving an area, but then also as he leaves uh, sanctuary, he wants to be able to smell where he's heading into. And, and usually what I find in the data is they kind of move at like a side angle to both. So they can kind of see in front of them. So like if a buck's moving like this, he can kind of see everything, you know, and they can almost see all the way around their head. Right. Yeah. But, but then also that the wind's maybe going like this. So they're kind of crossing the wind, but they're heading into it still at the same time. Right. So that, that choice is generally heavily relied upon by the wind. And, and like I said, cloud or um, uh, uh, vegetative cover. So that, that is pattern. So a pattern could be a normal pattern. So if you know a particular deer that you're targeting shows up at like a feeder or a field every night at the same time, and he enters from the same corner and you sit there in your truck from the road. And every night you see him do that same thing or her, she does the same thing. That would be their normalized pattern that they use based on the 
the weather, the normal weather conditions in your area. They don't all, not all deer do that, but the general deer does do that. And then there's an abnormal pattern and then like a very abnormal pattern and like a very abnormal pattern may be like that deer is not predictable at all today. And an abnormal pattern might be instead of coming in on that Northeast part of that field, they're coming from the straight Northern part of that field. Right. So those are the, those are the ways that that, 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 that it predicts and we're, and we're getting into a lot more right now and, and looking to prevent, present the user with a lot more data than that. Um, and, and I can talk about it later, but, uh, that's kind of the, that's kind of in a nutshell. Um, and I guess I should say one more thing for people who maybe haven't heard this before, haven't really done any digging on artificial intelligence. All artificial intelligence is, is high level pattern recognition. So like the term freaks people out sometimes they're like, Oh, you know, what are we doing with artificial intelligence? Where are we going with this? You know, in my experience, you hear people kind of talk about like artificial, like we're going to have talking machines coming around the corner. And, and that's a very specific type of artificial intelligence, which in the artificial intelligence community is called general intelligence. And basically that means you can throw any scenario at this thing and it's going to solve it. Right. Right. I think we're like 75 years from general intelligence, maybe even a hundred years from general intelligence. Like people talk about like general intelligence and it's just, as I see how this work gets done and all of the painstaking, like just to recognize a picture of a cat is so much work. Right. And, <laughs> right. and there's so much that goes into that and it can be fooled so easily. Like there's very easy ways to fool, to fool these things. Um, now it's getting better with stuff like deep fakes and those types of things. But still, um, you know, there are adversarial neural networks whose job is to expose like a deep fake. And, and the science that I'm seeing on that is very good. So all of that to say is if anyone's worried about the implications of this, and they certainly wouldn't, you know, I don't want artificial intelligence. And I certainly don't want it, my dear prediction, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I would just say, A, it's just pattern recognition. And it's pattern recognition that has the ability. We have a, lo- a very good ability now to store large amounts of data and do analysis on large amounts of data. So that's all this is, is, is it's pattern analysis, and finding patterns in large sections of data that would not be human readable. It would take a human, you know, we've got something like almost 400 years of deer data. Um, no human would be able to sit there and go through that and draw the patterns from it. It would just be too much. Right. So I've put a lot there and I'm, and I'm, I know I'm getting far afield already. I can sense it. So, um, <laughs> you know, I'll stop there and, and, and kind of leave it out for your questions or anything you want to take this. Yeah, no, I think you, man, you, you said so much great stuff that, uh, you know, I was writing down just the normal versus the abnormal deer pattern movement. You know, when I, like as a kid, my dad would say, Hey, go in this stand You'll and sit here all day. Like the only time I want you to get down is when you radio me and say, I'm going to go step down, I'm going to pee and I'm going <laughs> to eat my lunch, go back up in the stand and wait there until it's dark and I'll come get you. Like that was always what I was told older and started going out more on my own. And you're trying to like use cameras. You're trying to, uh, just scout more and f- figure out the deer patterns and where are their exit and exit strategy and entry and exit strategies from pressure from other people. And, you know, just, there's so much goes in and, and then we haven't, I didn't even mention weather, you know what I mean? So you're just, there's so many variables that go into predicting deer movement, um, that, you know, now, like I was saying earlier about having our phones on us pretty much at all times, I know people go out in the woods and they don't use it and power to them. But at the same time, for a lot of people, 
getting in the woods is very limited. Like, I'm a school yep. teacher. This past year, I was very, very fortunate with obviously COVID that when we were going lockdown, you know, if I'm teaching remotely, I have kind of, I had a little bit of freedom to go out and do things. That's not going right. to be the, I, I, one, I don't want that to be the norm. So it's right. kind of, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, hey, our time is limited to maybe one day during the week, every two weeks, and then on the weekends, obviously. So anytime that we could maximize opportunities, that's where I think an, an application like Spartan Forge really just shines and could help. And, and I think too, how many people have you spoken to probably I could, you could count on multiple hands that just nerd out over this stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. That really just want, like are foaming out the mouth to give me that more information. Like, you know, it's just could it could kind of help get somebody over the hump too, as well. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, the two things that you kind of talk about there are kind of the focus of the company. Um, you know, one of our pro staffers is a guy named Andy May, who's also a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't have a lot of time to do the scouting like he would like to, um, or as many hunts during the year as he'd like to. Um, and, and then also, like, as you said, people who are kind of new to the sport, right? Mm-hmm. I, there's a lot of people who, and I know guys that I've tried to bring into hunting, and they just didn't get, you know, you'd be, I bring them to some really tough public ground and uh, they might see one or two deer and like five or six sits, right? Yeah. Then they lose interest. And they don't want to do it anymore. Like, like a lot of people say, well, if they lose interest then I don't want them doing it anyway. It's like, well, hold on. Just think about what you're saying. Yeah. Like yeah. these people have a vote and, and they're putting politicians in office that affect how much public land we get. And, and it affects, you know, uh, our rights as hunters, as it re- relates to, you know, you know, even though the second amendment is not for hunting, right. It would still affect hunting if there was, you know, restrictions put on the second amendment. So <clears throat> my thing is I want as many people hunting as possible. And and on top of that, right. Sometimes it just, people have a higher threshold to find out what they did. They, like they'll say, I never knew what I was missing out on. Yeah. Right. Maybe that is maybe, maybe it was three deer they needed to see instead of two that would have gotten them to where they're hyped up or just, arrowing their first doe or their first, you know, button buck or something like that, or small animal. Um, And then they're in the game. Right. And now to me, that's important. So the company's really for those two types of, well, it's for everyone, but the people that I think about are the people like myself who have almost no time, especially right now, as I've last two years, my hunting's really been suffering because I haven't had the scouting time that I'd like. And I don't don't have the hunting time that I'd like. Um, you know, routinely by this time in the year, I've been out, I don't know, 15 or 20 times shed hunting or something like that. I used to go early in the morning before work, you know, and then get out and do some, you know, at least two hours of shed hunting or leave work early if I could, or if I could take a meeting by phone, I'd be out shed hunting looking for new spots. I haven't been out. I've been out one time this year (laughs) and and it's just because I'm busy working on this so much is where my heart is at. Um, so yeah, if, if I can give somebody that little bit of edge, so it's either more time with their wife or more time with their husband or more time with their kids and not sacrificing their harvest goals, right? A, that to me is huge, right? They, they get, they get to understand more without having to learn it in the woods at the cost of either their favorite spot or their plot that they have planted. Right. Right. And then the second thing would be for those people who are new to the sport or up and coming people like, um, phones, as you said, they're here to stay. Yeah. Most people are in the field. They bring a phone. If it's not for safety reasons, then it's for an all day sit. Like you talked about where, you know, it might be nice to be able to play some candy crush at lunch. You know, I'm dying. Right. So 
anyway, if we can keep, keep people in the sport for those reasons and keep people voting in favor of pro hunting reps legislation, yeah. um, and serving the community and buying products, um, that also gets reinvested into habitat and diversity of habitat and quality of deer herd, you know, the QDMA or, or QDM or any of those things, right. It just, it makes it better when there's more money being injected into our, this passion that we have and that we share. So for me, it's making it easier for everyone, not in an unethical way where like my apps aren't going to say deer are here, right. Go kill deer. That's not what they're going to say. I always make the comparison of it's like having access to like your grandfather who, who really knows this plot of land really well. Yeah. Right. Like it's just, he's not going to tell you where the deer are and maybe nine times out of 10, he's wrong, but you know, he'll be right that one time about this big deer, right. Or something along those lines. It's basically just knowledge for people who a don't maybe have access to that grandfather or weren't brought in by family members into hunting and can really use a leg up when it comes to, you know, I, um, had some people early in my life who kind of helped me with hunting, but when I got serious into hunting, I really had no idea what I was doing, especially with bow hunting. It's a totally different game from rifle hunting. Yeah. Um, and I learned a lot of lessons the hard way. And I would say it took me about four years because I'm a caveman and I don't learn quickly <laughs> of making the same mistakes because I had some early success doing something. And I thought that's the way I need to hunt from now on. Yeah. Um, and so giving people that so they don't have to waste their time or their family's time and just give like, here are some good lessons from the data and here are some good lessons that I'm going to, you know, here are some good things about the particular area that you're in that I'm going to throw into this app so that you don't have to learn those lessons the hard way. And if, if it, and truly, if it's about putting meat on the table for your family, then I do want to develop an app that's going to say the deer are here. Like, yeah. uh, I, I know I'll never get there. I'm speaking in tongue or in jest kind of tongue in cheek kind of, but, um, if somebody's hunting for like, I grew up very poor. Um, and that's why I joined the military. Um, if it does mean someone's not going hungry or some kids getting a meal, then yeah, I want my app to be as good as possible. <laughs> right. And I want that deer on the ground and someone's got a problem with it. Then don't use the app. Right. Like, right. especially when it comes to people who are eating, right. Yep. The, the, or who depend on the meat. And I know many of those people, especially now during COVID um, people Holy losing cow, their yeah. jobs and that type of stuff. Um, you know, Taylor Chamberlain, who we just talked about earlier, um, him and I were doing some late season hunting, um, with that exact, uh, our exact, our exact intent was to put some freezer meat, freezer meat in the freezer for people who had lost their jobs during COVID. Yeah. Um, and that's what we did. So, um, you know, all of those things are very important. So, you know, people can get cavalier and say, you know, it's too much technology. And then my first question would be, well, you know, you're using an app where you have a God's eye view of the world. Like, you know, the most powerful king a hundred years ago couldn't have hoped or even thought about a view of the world that you now have from like a map on your phone Yep. or, you know, <clears throat> the, the distilled and embodied knowledge that everybody posts online through all these deer hunting forums, give you the ability to learn and increase your bandwidth to learn in a way that's never been done before. And, and the rifles and the way that we've done rifling and barrels and optics and camo, it's like, unless you're going to go out and kill a deer with a stick and string and then clothe yourself with that. Right. Maybe we shouldn't poo poo on technology <laughs> quite yet. Um, I understand it. Like sometimes it gets crazy. I get it. Um, I certainly don't think my app borders on that. So, um, but yeah, it's, it, I, I, again, I'm off on a tangent. No, man, that's good. No. And, and that's the thing though, too. Like I said, like all the material that you have in there are things that people try to do 
already either on their own. Like I, re- I remember listening to Andy May on like on Mark Kenyon's like Wired to Hunt podcast and talk about you know trying to pattern deer and do all those type yeah. of things. So like when you have something that's just all right there by because someone like yourself develops it, like they're the people that want that, you know, and you're, you know, like you said, like Andy's a teacher, I'm a teacher. We want to maximize, maximize those opportunities. And then there's the other side of things where people want just that Intel, like what is going to be that barometric pressure, the moon phase and all this other details that might go in, into deer, dinner, deer patterning, um, to help them. Like, that's just what people, people want more information and, you know, like you're saying, and, and some people don't, fine <laughs> then don't yeah. use it you know yeah. what i mean it's it's not a it's not hard yeah i mean it's all it, i'm a walking talking paradox like i hunt often with <clears throat> a bow that i made <clears throat> from like a long time ago and i'm building another one this you know in my spare time now which is almost none so <laughs> i've not done maybe three hours of work on it but um you know it, i think it's good to have a balance of you have an ability to leverage technology either when it makes sense to, or when you might need to for a situation like we talked about about before, but then also, you know, until about three years ago, I did a hunt with some guys every year where we would go out together. There's four of us and we would do nothing, but we would bring nothing but beer and we'd hunt with longbows and we'd go out into like um, this really harsh um, public land that we'd go to and we'd have a cooler that was full of food that was locked. Okay. And until somebody had killed a deer, nobody was eating. And we'd go sometimes like two or three days before, you know, we did our scouting and, you know, we always killed something. Sometimes it'd be two or three days where we're just waiting to get a deer on the ground. It sounds kind of crazy, but it's kind of like that balance, right? Like of uh, having technology is great and all that stuff is awesome, but also kind of also I, I make a point to turn the phone off. Um, you know, when I'm, when I know I'm approaching like what I think are the better hours of my hunt, um, and I, and I leave it alone or I try not to look about, at, at it because I have burned myself by looking at a phone and then I look up and a doe has just gotten into my wind stream and starts blowing or whatever. Um, so, you know, that, that, um, I don't know what to call it, but, um, that balance of, <clears throat> I guess it's kind of like, you know, your teachers would say, look, once you've learned long division, you can use a calculator, right. but you're not going to le- use that calculator until you've learned long division. Right the hope would be that my app might be something for like that 18 year old where, yeah, he might get the answers early, but then my hope is, is that he or she will go back and then learn why these things right. do the things that they do or how this has been built or why it's been built. Yeah. And then get again, to get that balance. Yeah. Right? Learn from important. experience, right? Learn from that experience. Right. Okay. Yes. This is why I'm seeing that. Okay, great. Like, let me now learn from that. And you know, that's, that's the thing. Like people could actually take that and, and use it to learn from it and not just like, it's not like you said, it's not telling you exactly where deer are going to be, right? It's just, you're just helping to help pattern deer. And again, if you're in the field and you're using it and success seeing it, then boom, you're good. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what I tell a lot of people is with the exception of our, um, uh, when feature, which kind of tells you, you know, where deer will be in their areas. Um, there, there's of course circumstances where if you only own like a 20 acre plot, and you know the deer don't bed on your plot of land, then you may want to wait until you have a full range day to go and hunt that land, right? Uh-huh. So in that case, you're, you're kind of waiting for the, the updates from the app to say, okay, you know, this is a full range day. Now I, now I think the deer will be bedding, leaving their bedding areas early enough where 
I'm not blowing my land out if I hunt this small 20 acre spot. Right. Right. Um, and then on the, on the flip side of that, if you're not on a small plot and you're hunting like public land and you've got a bunch of core predictions, then it's telling you, you know, you need to get right into these core areas if you want to see these deer on their feet during, during, um, uh, daylight hours. So that, that's kind of the day by day part of the app. But then the rest of the app is really a scouting. It's really for help for scouting and understanding the woods better. And it's not meant to be used like in the moment, like we have a wear feature that we're beta testing this year and there's a small chance it could go onto the open market this year. Although I think it's going to be next year, but that will basically tell you like you'll, you'll give it a, an area to look at and you'll say, okay, generally based on the pattern recognition that this AI has done, here's where you would expect to find your bedding. And here's where you find expect to find some scraping or some, some rubs um, and that type of uh, stuff. But that is not something that I would advise anyone to use, you know, the first time they're stepping on a piece of property to hunt it. Right. Right. Like that is a feature for scouting in the off season or for, you know, if you, you know, there's a situation where maybe you, you get access to some land you didn't get to scout in the off season, then maybe that's the time it might be pragmatic to use it, to just look at, you know, I'm going to set up here today because I, I'm not going to have time to go and scout this. My scouting is going to happen while I hunt, which a lot of people do. And that's fine too. But, I really think of the core, the majority of the features that our application is going to offer as being scout, like scouting features, yeah, help with scouting and understanding the deer woods. Awesome, man. Well, dude, let's jump in. Go ahead and share okay. your screen. Let's let's get into the meat and potatoes. So this is just you know what we are. The, the, the app is called the Outfitter. The company is called Spartan Forge. Um, you know we kind of tout it as the world's first artificial intelligence hunting application. Um, the problems, kind of the thing we, we kind of touched on it before, although I don't know if we said it explicitly. Hunters are who are using technology to kind of leverage them their, themselves in the deer woods are using a wide variety of apps to get it done. Um, and, you know, every, you know, three different weather apps, a different app for the wind, a different app for this, a different app for that. And, and it, it, it's cumbersome and it's annoying to go to all these different places. So what we're just doing is we're making this common operating picture, which is a military term. What a common operating picture does is it gives you all the salient information about an area um, before you go in there. So some of them can be focused on like the terrain, the topography, the culture. Um, It can present present an intelligence picture um, that is answering maybe in the military what we call priority intelligence requirements. It's trying to kind of answer the mail on what do we need to know before we go in here and commit money and lives to a particular end. So this, this is just a screenshot from what we're developing right now, which is our app for the app store. Um, and it's, uh, I'm thinking July is when people will be able to have access to it right now. Everything's accessed online in this forum and I'll bring people through this here in just a couple of minutes. Um, but this is kind of like our targeting model and this targeting model is built on the special operations, um, find, fix, finish model. It's actually called the find, fix, finish, exploit, analyze, and disseminate model now, F3EAD. Um, and this is all unclassed, open stuff. People can, they can look up like the field manual for targeting. Um, all of this is in there. It's all open source stuff that anybody can download on the internet. But basically, um, it, all of these questions are questions that my apps are seeking to um, answer. Uh, right now, we're kind of focused on the right-hand side of the screen, which is the find, fix, finish portion of it. Um, although I have that green book full of ideas that, um, 
it's full of stuff on the exploit, analyze and disseminate um, yeah, portion man. as well. Um, so uh, those things I see coming in the future um, as we are able to kind of kick these first things out the door, which will fund our development on, on things that we're doing later. This, this right here, um, I kind of talked about it before, <clears throat> but um, the way that we train this model and then how the model uh, interfaces with the, with the user and then what it provides, it kind of goes left or right here. So can you see my cursor here or no? Yep, absolutely. So on the left here, you just have GPS data. So I don't even think this is my GPS data. I think this is just something I found online that looked nice. But um, all this is is, you know, a buck's wearing a collar or a doe's wearing a collar. And over a period of time, <laughs> we are getting uh, GPS waypoints from places that they are. And, uh, you know, some of our studies are every 15 minutes. Some of our studies, are, I think the worst one we've got, I shouldn't say the worst, the lowest resolution one, I think, is every six hours. Okay. Um, and then our studies average from one year to eight years. So we've got some good studies out of Texas where we're able to, we have a buck call, we have bucks and does collared from the moment they dropped out of their mother wow. until they die. Um, so, you know, that is amazing data. Yep. Um, and it's awesome to look at. And um, it's allowed me to come up with some really interesting observations observational data that I've generate, generated as a non-biologist. Um, I'm not a biologist. I don't pre pretend to be one. I don't know why deer do half of the things they do, <laughs> but I do. I, I can make statistical inferences based on what I see. <clears throat> That's to say I can make a pretty good guess about what I think is going on and why I think that. But I would leave it up to some of these guys that I work with to kind of, and gals that I work with to kind of say, this is actually what is happening here. Um, so we have that GPS data. We have the 30 years of weather data. Um, then we have academic and state research. So what, one of the things that I really talk about a lot, I don't know how much people appreciate it, but I spent about three years of my life looking up every peak and secondary rut date for every county in the U.S. Wow. So uh, I spent a lot of time researching that and looking for peer-reviewed papers and calling biologists and talking to insurance organizations. Cause basically what I did was in an optimal circumstance, I would find an academic study that said, you know, we were in this state forest in this part of North Carolina. Um, we tagged this many deer and we, you know, this many deer doe were killed after the rut and all of the fetuses were this long indicating that they were bred during these dates. Um, and then, you know, they do a second round of killing and then there'd be a second breeding date that they got, which is generally pretty safely lines up 28 days later after the first one. I've been reading some interesting stuff lately where in, in magazines, and I don't know if it's just to sell magazines or what is happening, but people are saying things like there's really no second breeding date. Um, and I can just tell you as a guy who's actually looked at the data and I'd be happy to have this debate with anyone and I don't need to be a biologist to do it. There is certainly a second breeding date. And, there, and there's two interesting things. And I, I, I feel bad because I just talked about this on another podcast, but I feel like it's your, your listeners should hear it. Not, not only is there a second breeding date, and there's two things that contribute to that second breeding date from talking to biologists, something I can repeat, which is sometimes the doe to buck ratios are so skewed that the bucks simply can't bred all of the does because there are too many of them. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about a situation where it's like seven, seven or eight, nine does receiving in some places where it's like 11 yeah. and it's bad for one reason or another, 
usually the herds will rebalance themselves, but until they do, there'll be too many does for bucks and they simply don't get bred on their first cycle. And then 28 days later, they come into a cycle again. And you can always tell when that's happening in your deer woods because the scrapes will be abandoned. And then all of a sudden, like, let's just say it's November 7th is your date. Well, then December 5th is your second date. So, you know, you'll start to see some scraping around maybe, I should say lots of scraping in volume, maybe like your last weekend of October and then a ton of it. And then maybe like five days before that peak conception date, it kind of falls off. And that's because there's a sufficient amount of does that are being bred and the bucks don't have to signal sexual signal signal sexually through the scrapes because there are does everywhere that are willing to be bred and standing for being bred. Right. And then if not all those does are bred, they'll come in that second estrus cycle. Um, that's obvious in the data. And I can, it's obvious in the data because the data provide, I, I, I measure all of linear movement for every deer. Um, <clears throat> and I say, I, now it's Jimmy and I, <laughs> um, but we measure all of this and it produces these, these graphs. You can graph it out and look at it and you'll see it right. But right before the first peak rut date, though, the amount of movement just goes to the roof. Wow. It's as if they never moved. And then it'll go back down to almost nothing or not nothing, maybe about 10% of that peak. Right. And then right during that second date, they'll go right back up again. So that's a long explanation, but I've been reading stuff lately in magazines and online where they're like, don't be fooled by the second rut. And it's just like, no, there's absolutely a second rut. Yeah. The second thing that happens is that um, fawns, female fawns are not sexually mature until they reach a certain body weight <clears throat> and um, that they can reach that sexual maturity during the rut. So in other words, say the date, say the number. And I think I've read studies that I, I'm with people I've worked with where in their area, the, the number is like 60 pounds. Okay. Like if they're 58 pounds, when it's time for that first cycle, their body will say, look, you don't have enough fat to cycle and to wean fawns. So you're, you're not going to cycle here, but then they might gain five or six pounds by December. Because now they have access to food because all the bucks are not eating the food and they're not kicking them off of food plots or the does aren't doing it because they're being chased. So these do- so these fawn does fatten up and then all of a sudden they're ready for the cycle the second time around. Um, so that situation also occurs. And then I see that is, can be seen in the data as well. So it's, there's certainly a second, um, a second one. So I'm sorry, I, I got sidetracked. Oh, thank there, you. That's fascinating stuff, dude. That is really, really awesome. Yeah. And so that is where the sec- the academic research feeds us. But then the second point of contact there is like five, four years ago. And then again, like three years ago, I got a ton of data from um, USAA mm-hmm. and State Farm on um, car collision data. Yep. And basically what they were trying to do is like send emails out to people um, in their air, in their certain areas saying like, this is the time of year when you should expect be really road weary and look where you're driving because the majority of our car deer collisions happen during this time. And that's because bucks are smelling hot does from across the road or because a doe is being chased by a buck because she's almost hot. He's, he's chasing her. He's not tending her yet. And she's trying to avoid him. So she's running across the road or a buck smells a doe across the road. So he crosses the road. He normally wouldn't do, or just because they're searching so much. Right. So emails go out or they contact customers or you can find the data on their website. And then what I do is I, I line that up with all that academic and state research. And then the numbers almost always make sense. It's almost <laughs> always that that peak of collisions is something 
I'm going to get it wrong. I should have looked it up before I say this. So I'll just say, <clears throat> I believe it's about 11 days or 12 days, and I could be wrong, in the north. And then in the south, it's much longer. I want to say it's like 16. I could be wrong. So if someone else heard me talk about this earlier in another podcast, I apologize. I can get you the number. But anyway, it's very predictable that 12 or 16 days later, whatever it is, you have your peak of conception and breeding. Wow. Um, and it's, 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 it's like clockwork. <clears throat> so anyway, all of that data goes into our, our targeting models and we start, you know, I consult the, my green books and I say, okay, what can we build for this year or for next year that is going to take advantage of that data and then present it to a hunter in a way that's usable and palatable and understandable. And so what we have is a composite of neural networks and we have many neural networks. Some of them tag data, some of them analyze data, and then some of them make prediction on that analysis. The composite of those neural networks is what we call phalanx. <clears throat> so all of those neural networks sit on top of each other and do all of that Yellman's work that I was talking about before and what phalanx is doing. And this, I'm getting confusing now. What those neural networks do for our program is make all of those guesses okay. and, and do all of that diligence on that data. So really the majority of our work, unless we're deal, unless we're developing a new neural network is cleaning yep. and making sure the integrity is there in that data and that it's data that can be understood by the machine. Okay. Um, the output of that is our first, our win model, which people can look at online right now. And, and we feel, we put this out this year in this form because we really wanted to know how well the neural network was doing prediction. In other words, you can have the right answer to a question, but if it's not going to help the person that's asking the question, uh -huh. it, it doesn't do any good for them. In other words, I can predict deer movement well, but if it, if it isn't translating to seeing more deer or more deer being on the ground, then it's useless for the hunter. So instead of like doing the whole app development and doing all of that stuff, which was either going to be a huge time investment or it was going to be a huge monetary investment, um, we decided to just put this thing online and let people evaluate it and look at it. And I was pleasantly surprised because we got a ton of users, way more users than I ever thought we were going to get. And we didn't spend a dollar on advertising. It was just podcasts. Um, and, it, and it really... Uh, it still shocks me when I think about it right now. Like the, we got into the thousands of users um, just from being on podcasts, you know, so people were willing to throw 25 bucks down to look at something because they heard my dumb ass talk about it on a, a podcast. So, I mean, that to me was amazing. So what, what they get is that when model, which I'll bring people through, and then they get the historical weather model, um, which we're refining and we're going to be putting out here very soon Sweet. Um, in, a, in a heightened form. And basically what you'll be able to do that with that is manipulate your weather data for any place in the U.S. And you'll be able to look at about 30 years of weather data. So if wow. you say you uh, want to go hunt in North Dakota, but you've never been there before, maybe you want to do like an early season North Dakota hunt because you want to kill a velvet buck, which they're awesome for doing. I, I've, I've killed a few velvet buck, all of them up in North Dakota. <clears throat> the, what you can do is you can go to the historical weather model and you can say, you know, if say your vacation, say your school doesn't come into session until second week of September. So you have the whole first week of September. You can pull the model and say, what does the first week of September look like from a weather standpoint in this specific area? Yep. <clears throat> and it'll say like, you know, 61% of the time it's a northwest wind. <clears throat> By the end of the week, 38% of the time it shifts into an eastern wind. Here's the here's how warm and how cold it is. Here's you know, the, the polar plot or the, the wind vector uh, graph that we produce, um, what's, or wind rose is what it's called. 
And then here are also the historical predictions for that area. So you can look at and say like, maybe you, maybe you had a friend who lives there and you had him put a camera up for you last year. Well, you can look, go through and look and evaluate the model and see how it does for those individual deer, which is something I put out there because I know how accurate this model is and our pro staff were very diligent. Most of them wouldn't sign on or be contributors or be on the pro staff until they got an opportunity to evaluate the model. And, and, you know, all of them actually, after looking at the model and then we kind of talked through the data, especially guys like Garrett Prawl from the Midwest, um, who's on the pro staff, he kept meticulous records and he's got a great story on his podcast about how, you know, he had a low, low, and I think a transition day or like a core core and then transition day. And him and his wife had scouted this perfect area and they were right in peak rut. And he thought for sure they'd be seeing deer all day. Well, the model said low, low. And I was scared because he told me that. And I was like, oh, this is not good. Like <laughs> if, if he just sees deer all day, he's not going to want to work with us. Right. Well, him and his wife didn't see one deer in those two days Wow. on this public land. And I'm not saying this is how it's going to be for right. everyone. Right. But what I'm saying is that was their experience. So on that third day, they decided we should get down. It was the only transition day. <clears throat> in other words, it was me core, core transition. And I think core again. And they're like, okay, so here is our statistical best day for movement outside of a bedding area, even though it's the rut. <clears throat> so what they did was they got on the ground and they scouted for fresh sign and they found like some scraping, fresh scraping right outside of a bedding area. And at like 2 PM, he arrowed like 150 inch deer. Wow. That was checking a scrape. <clears throat> and had they just been like listening to the conventional wisdom on movement, I think nine times out of 10 guys would have just said, just stick it out in the tree, stay up in the tree, you know, run it out, whatever. Whereas if had they stayed in that tree, they would have never seen that deer. Wow. Like it just, they were not leaving the range. And it was, I think in Wisconsin that year or last year, it was unseasonably warm as well. Um, which affects, you know, if you've got a bear coat on like a ton of hair, you're just not going to move as much. Right. There's other things that go into it, obviously, but, that was, you know, a, a use case. And then other pro staffers had similar experiences where they pulled, you know, cameras that they had soaked all year. And they looked at, you know, this, let's say this is a camera that generally only has nighttime movement on it. It's like an inventory camera where you're just trying to find out what's on the property and you, and you and you put it in a place where, you know, they'll only come at night and you do it that way because you want to be able to check the camera and not spook them off. Cause they won't be anywhere near it. Then they, what they would do is one handy way is they look at all the full range days and they look at the days where there were deer showing up during daylight hours. And then they would just at, do the math and it always ended up, I think all of them were North of 60% of the time. Wow. In other words, if, if the, if the model was saying it was going to be a full range day, then you, then 60% of the time they were going to see daylight photos on those cameras that were otherwise, uh, um, nighttime photo cameras only. Um, so it, it, statistically, the numbers bear out whenever it's like, you know, you're talking about tens of thousands of images, then, th then the numbers can bear out. Um, the problem is, you know, sometimes your sample set has to be sufficient so that you have right. um, a, a, a good statistical number of images to look at to evaluate it. In other words, you wouldn't want to just throw the camera out for three days and then come back and then do an analysis of the model. So anyway, that's the historical weather piece. And then the wear model, which we're still refining right now, basically just says, all right, on this piece of land, um, here's where the machine, right? The machine has, <clears throat> the way I put it to people is we are, um, uh, we are 
replicating the automated instinctual reasoning process that a deer would use regarding a decision to risk their neck or not to either eat or breed. Right. So like, um, you know, a buck, as far as we know, doesn't have consciousness, you know, they, they are not actually actively making decisions. They're responding to their, to their environment and they've got wiring, right. That does that. And it's similar wiring that would make you like flinch when a baseball is being thrown at you and you don't see it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's happening at a, it's happening at a sub optical level. So your eyes are just mapping danger coming at you and it goes right past the part of your brain that reasons and it goes straight to your spinal cord and that hand comes up. Right. Um, that is the same mechanism that a deer would use whenever it says, should I flee from smelling something, which is why it's so fast, but it's also the mechanisms because they're, you know, again, I'm not a biologist, but because they're not making decisions, they have wiring that is making the decisions for them. So our job with these neural networks is to replicate that wiring. So we're automating that reasoning process. Right. So when we automate that process on land, the machine says during the daylight hours, between 10 and two, here's where deer seem to be spending their, their afternoons and their late mornings. So then when the model looks at a map, it says, well, if I'm the general deer, here's where I would spend my mornings and afternoons on this map. Like that's, and then, and then here are the, the leeward ridges that you should investigate as a result of that or whatever. Um, so that's the wear model. And then, you know, what, what kind of makes us different? Right. And this is kind of like a a pitch deck type of format. It might not work for your guys, but what I think makes us different or what makes us different, right. Is there's no guessing here. This isn't like, again, I I talked about it before when I was building my first models, my first models were highly dependent on how well I chose camera selection or where I was putting things. Mm -hmm. And in other words, the, you know, humans are awful. (laughs) <laughs> at, at coming up with reasons why things happen because we always involve, involve ourselves in the guesswork. Right. And it's highly biased to whatever um, predilection or predisposition we have about why things happen. Yep. So we'll find reasons to validate why we think our model, like however we've built our model still works. Um, machines don't do that. They just, wherever the stats lead the machine and whatever is the better decision and statistically over time gives us the most right answers is what the machine uses. Right. And because there's no human, you know, influencing from a data acquisition standpoint, those GPS callers on those deer, um, you're getting the best, the deer is, is educating the model and nothing else. So that's what makes us different. When you download another app from another um, company, you are, you are, you would essentially, in order for that app, that app to work for you, you would have to have the same types of deer, which they're not the same anywhere in the U.S. Again, I can bear that out in the data. <clears throat> but also, you would have to make the same, if you had the same deer, say you had a farm over from them, where the deer are generally the same from an evolutionary standpoint, <clears throat> you would have to make the same stand selections in the same amount of time in the field and pull the cameras at the same time for those deer to react exactly. in the same way. Yep. It's just not going to happen. Um, and so the other, you know, the other thing there is that I kind of gloss over, but it's really important is deer in the North do not do anything like the deer in the South do. Right. Um, there's just the the things that get them moving 
And the things that tighten the rut windows are how long seeking and chasing lasts or how a, a pressure or barometric pressure change affects deer in the north is much more than deer in the south. <clears throat> deer in the south are not worried necessarily about a rainstorm. In fact, in a lot of the data that I see in the south, light rain tends to get deer moving, um, whereas most people would sit that out. Um, another interesting point of contact would be in the north when it, there's a pressure change or a barometric pressure change. It depends. It doesn't depend on the amount of pressure change or that there's a pressure change. It depends on how many favorable feeding days were there before that pressure change. And that will lead to the decision process that the general deer will make on, all right, now am I going to go to the field and risk my neck to feed? Right. In other words, if you had, <clears throat> if you had only two favorable feeding days before a really bad storm, and the deer does not have the requisite amount of fat on its body that it's instinctually programmed that it knows it needs in order to make it through the general winter in that area, <clears throat> then that pressure change will get them moving. Right. But if they've had nine, 10, 11 days and ample food and resources, and it's been a good year for crops <clears throat> and they sense that same deer or that same pressure drop <clears throat> more often than not, they will sit it out on their stomach. Right. So people just look at a map and they say pressure change go <laughs> and and temperature drop. It's like no, what you have to look at is since they've been trying to put fat on their body, which is essentially <clears throat> since, you know, the end of the last season, how much fat have they generally been able to put on their body up to that point is going to make the decision on how it will affect it because when guys are always like, you know, we had this huge storm coming through and I knew there would either be movement right before or right after and there'd be a ton of it and there was just nothing. I didn't see a deer. And it's like, did you have like a generally good winter? Like, was it a warm win winter where there wasn't a lot of storms and stuff? Yep. Then, that, then you can expect that type of behavior. <clears throat> but then in the South, rutting dates and doe movement and general deer movement um, <clears throat> has more to do with things like humidity and floodplain and, and, and relation to the floodplain season or the flood season. So uh, if you're if you're deer in an area that generally floods, then a humidity drop or a pressure change that could be indicative of a storm will make those deer move in a way that it wouldn't in another area where flooding is not a, a, a problem. And it also leads to how the in the data we find it also leads to how the rut is timed because the the fawns the the from an evolutionary perspective. You wouldn't want the does dropping fawns during a flood season or when there could be flooding. So then you have, with that, you'll find in places like South Carolina or in the South, where you, or in Florida, for, for, for instance, near swamps, you'll have a peak rut date of like October 28th, and then 10 miles to the West, it'll be January 13th. <laughs> and, and there's two things that drive that. The first thing is, where were the deer stocked from and how recently were they stocked? In other words, do they drive some deer down from Minnesota or something like that? And then, and then do those deer still have the evolutionary mechanisms that are based in the North and not in the South? But then the second thing is where are they in relation to that floodplain and are the does tuned to that? Um, and where will they move once they've gotten pregnant or are they going out of that floodplain or out of that swamp and they're going somewhere else? All of that stuff is, is, it gets a vote. And you wouldn't know any of those things or be able to predict on any of them unless you had data and droves from all of those places. So when you're looking at these general models, I, I, I'm going to try not to sound like an ideologue. Um, 
there's probably some goodness there. Right. But, but for the majority of the time, you need to think about things in a more all encompassing way. Um, and, and it simply doesn't relate to just, you know, what does the weather look like next week? Right. The question should be, how has the weather looked for the past six months? And now how do I weigh that against how it looks for the next week? Right. Um, so, you know, regression models are just if and statements as it relates to deer movement. Um, and I can say this um, from doing my own evaluations on models. If you had five, for instance, <clears throat> I'll sign up for these deer prediction apps when I started this work just to evaluate how accurate some of them were. And then I would know I'm getting GPS data for that year. So <laughs> a good example would be 2017. I knew I was getting data from these places. So I kept going to these apps and pulling predictions. And then I'd get the actual data and I could actually evaluate it. And on one of the apps across like five buckets of prediction, in other words, um, or no, it's four buckets of prediction. Um, you, right. You would be right. If you had a four-sided dice die, you would be right one out of four times. Right. Right. That's about how right those apps are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're pretty bad. In other words, they're just, mm-hmm. and now I'm saying that from a couple of years ago, I don't know how they've changed their stuff. Yeah. I don't like poo-pooing other people's work. They put time and money into it. I wish the best for them, but I'm just saying my model doesn't use any of those things. And where the similarities end is I do your prediction for movement and they do your prediction for movement. Right. The second point here, and I'm getting long winded, but military technologies, you know, that drives outdoor market, right? Like a new barrel comes out. Everybody wants that new barrel for their M4. A new SOP mod kit comes out from Knight's Armament or whomever. Everybody wants that. A new optic comes out that got, that SEALs were using, you know, somewhere, you know, an EOTech or something like that. Everybody wants that. A new camo comes out. Everybody wants that. A new optic, or I'm sorry, new optics for like glasses, gloves, whatever it might be, right? Like when something has been good enough for tier one um, special operations forces who are operating for themselves, their friends, and their lives, if it's good enough for them, then a hunter basically says it's good enough for me. Exactly. Um, and that's kind of where we come out of, right? Like our products were also built for the same types of forces that we were just talking about. Yep. Um, and, uh, and, and it worked pretty well for them from my, from where, you know, my foxhole. <laughs> so, you know, and that leads to the last point there is that our technologies are, you know, 20 years of my time, you know, prosecuting the global war on terrorism. And I'm trying to show everyone, you know, awesome. t- take advantage of that same type of stuff. And then the next slide here, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is going to be kind of what we're developing right now for the app. Okay. So I'll kind of let people look on a couple of these things. This is by no means not all of it, because as I talked about, there's beta testing going on and there's other things that we're bringing to bear that we're just not ready to show. So hopefully the deletes that I did on the other slides there from before took, but <clears throat> this is going to give you a good idea of what the app's going to look like and how it's going to function and some of the information that you can expect from it. So what we have here is, um, uh, you know, you have your introductory screen and then you might um, look up a zip code. <clears throat> you'll get your weather predictions and you'll get your sun up, sun down time, you know, nice. moon underhead, moon over foot. You'll get all of the pressure stuff, everything that you're getting from the outfitter right now. Your wind. <laughs> and then you're going to get um, on forecasts here, you're going to get like a movement and a pattern analysis. And then you're going to get some graphs that do show. Um, temperature, um, like you, you'll see on the top graph, you can't, oh, you know, it's right over here. <clears throat> so up here is like temperature and real feel. And then down here would be a pressure. 
<clears throat> so a lot of guys do still swear by when you have falling temperatures and rising pressure, you should be in the woods. So if they swear by that, well, my app will show them it. Right. Um, a lot of guys swear by moon overhead, moon underfoot. You know, mm-hmm. I don't tend to see it in the data right now, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean when I, I maybe double my data or triple my data in the next few years. And then all of a sudden I do see correlations for that. Right. <clears throat> but then also I'm not enough of a flippant butthole to say, now that I have this data, I know more than our grandfathers and great grandfathers and everyone who came before us. Um, they still put deer on the ground and they put meat on the table when it counted, like they weren't doing it for fun or for sport and they're sick of deer gear. They were doing it because they needed to eat <laughs> and they were doing it in red flannels with blue jeans on. Right. Yep. Oh, so they yeah. probably knew something that we didn't know. And there's probably some good knowledge there. And I try to show respect to that by keeping it in my applications. Um, because you know, I do like to kind of honor where I come from. Um, and I, I talk about it almost every podcast, but it's true. Like one of my mentors and, and a guy who was kind of my foray into this business was Charlie Alzheimer. <clears throat> and he was a um, deer photographer and a, and a hunter and a, and a, uh, what could you call him? A road scholar of deer movement. Um, and he, he based a lot of his opinions on the moon and the moon's um, uh, impact on deer movement. And I'm actually looking at a few of his books right now. You know, I had, the, I had the pleasure to meet him. So I went to his place. Uh, I went hunting with him and some friends a couple of times. <clears throat> you know, I became friends with his son. We still talk. Um, and, uh, you know, on here, you're like, you're below here. You can't see it right now. But there's going to be an Alzheimer prediction date. Like, he has mapped out what he thinks in relation to the moon and the rutting moon, which is the second full moon after the uh, uh, autumnal equinox. Yep. <clears throat> um he, he makes predictions on like your best days uh, when you're northern, in the Northern hemisphere, or, or I believe you've got to be able above the Mason Dixon, he says, but at any rate, that date will be on, on our, on our rut dates as well. But then also like, this is just general, this is not filled data right now. I've just built, we're building the front end for this right now, <clears throat> but this is just those, those dates and times and stuff like that. And then over here you have some weather prediction. Um, and then that polar plot that I talked about before the wind rose, and then you here you'll be able to click like the last two months, last four weeks, last three months. And then on this calendar, you'll be able to click and display individual months. Wow. And then here is just an observational um, uh, diary that you can keep on your phone as it pertains to deer movement or whatever kind of movement you want. So you can initiate it either by, you know, hitting this plus button or you can take a picture of an animal and then you can insert the picture in just as you see here. And then you, it'll automatically populate all of this data that um, was present when you took the picture, or you can specify a time. So in other words, you're in the field and you just took the picture of the deer. You wanted a picture of this like three and a half year old deer or whatever, or this, whatever item scrape, rub, whatever. And then you go back to your truck. um, You can tell the outfitter like, Oh, well, I don't want the pressure and the, I don't want all of the weather data from right now. I want it from, you know, yesterday morning when I took the picture. Right. So then it automatically goes back and pulls that information and then stores it in there. And then you can write like a little entry. And then when you click into that information, here's where, you know, this is what you saw. It's like a one antler six pointer. You can say some observation about what you saw. It'll autofill the GPS location. You can input the weapon that you chose. You can say the weather, <clears throat> you can either specify it, as I said, or it'll automatically populate it your guess on the age of the antler or of the deer it's antlers on the both sides obviously the sex you can make a guess on the weight um and and the um inches and this says width here that's wrong um it's actually going to be the um the amount of inches uh as a measurement a function of measurement nice and then the pictures that you can add below so um 
there, there's a lot on here that we're doing and that we're going with. Um, and then other things that we're exploring that we're not sure that we're going to do yet or not for this next year. But um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's coming along and it is what it is. Dude, that looks so clean as far as like, just like what the app is going to look like. It just has one. It has everything that you would want uh, like as a hunter and it, it goes even beyond probably for some others as well. But at the same time, like that looks so clean. Uh, as I'm far glad as, you feel that way. Cause yeah. that was my exact, um, you know, uh, in the military, when we do these studies on like the same types, uh, the same perennial studies, I think every officer goes through. <clears throat> and the one that really, you know, got me was the Spartans and what, how the Spartans trained for war and what they did and how they prepared and the way that they lived their lives. And although it would probably be an awful society to be a part of, um, <clears throat> there, there was some goodness there. And obviously you know, we're still talking about them today. Um, and, um, you know, that, I guess when you use the word Spartan, you're talking about something that, <clears throat> you know, only brings enough to bear for what is needed and, and is, you know, disciplined and clean and rigored and ready for, you know, combat. And that, you know, that's how I'm building these apps is they're not going to be, you know, advertisements and BS about click on this or tell us this. It's going to be, you know, you pay your 20 bucks. Here's your app. You're going to get everything you want out of it and more. Um, and it's going to be, everything will be two taps. Like I hate when you have to do like 12 taps on an application and there's like click into here. Okay. Now I go into here and then I edit this and I do this and then I got to go back and Oh, where was I? No, it's going to be, if I can't do it with two taps then it's not going in the app. I love that. Um, it's going to be clean. It's going to look clean. It's going to be functional. You know, the pro staff, if you go look at our pro staff on Instagram, they all have intimate amounts of input on this. Um, everything that, you know, they want from an app or they want from a series of apps or multiple apps is, is going to be in there. So, um, you know, uh, that, that is a, the Spartan approach that we're taking to this. Right. And, and that's what it is. It's the, it's the tools that you would get if you took a Spartan, a forge Spartan approach to hunting. And that's why it's called, you know, Spartan forge. So, um, I, I kind of brought up a point there peripherally and I should kind of hit a nail on it is whatever, if somebody listens to this podcast today and goes and pays for the online version right now, which I can show in just a second, um, they will get that right now. And then that historical update that we're doing will be done soon. But then after that, for as long as they stick with us, they will never see a price increase. Nice. So as we add all of these features and do all of these things, it's kind of like, um, I, I always laugh and think of like my grandfather had this saying, like, uh, you dance with who you came with. Yep. In other words, like you bring a woman to a dance, you don't dance with anyone else, you dance with a woman that you brought. Yep. Um, and that's how I kind of see this same thing is, as people want to support us early and we got a lot of support early that I didn't think in a million years we'd get without advertising. Um, the, I will never jack the prices on those guys. Um, and I say that in almost every podcast I go on. So if guys and gals want to sign up now and pay that 20 bucks, that's, you know, funding our development going forward. And as we add things, we're not going to add to their price. So, you know, we're going to have probably on order of 10 or 12 times as much functionality next year as we have right now. And plus it'll be on the app store. And if somebody was with us from the beginning and they paid their 1999 when we first launched, then by God, they're going to pay 1999 until I file chapter seven. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's where, that's where I go with that. So if your user sign up now, as we push out these new updates, that's what they'll pay forever. Um, I can quickly just kind of, um, 
share again and then bring you through the um, the outfitter as yep. in its current form. Right now, I have an idea of what your movement's going to look like because the deer haven't been pressured. And yeah, this is exactly what I thought it would look like. Um, so the deer have not been pressured in your area in a while, right? Yep. I'll go. I'll go through all this other stuff, then I'll kind of talk to that. After you look at tons and tons of deer movement over time and through month, through month, through month, you know, you can kind of make predictions on what a person's prediction is going to look like based on the time of the year. I'm not saying it's the same every time and every time of the year, but the variance is is generally the same. So what, what we see here is, um, you know, just your basic weather card, which was kind of on the other one. You've got your wind, you've got your possibility of precipitation, you've got your, your, um, your humidity, and then your pressure. Here you have your um, sunrise and sunset, moonrise, moonset, moon overhead, moon underfoot. Nice. And then, and then you just have your um, days of prediction here. Mm-hmm. And then you have your moon at the bottom and, and what phase your moon is in. And then over here you have your movement forecast. So I've explained this already, but it comes in three forms, core transition and full range. <laughs> so what you have here is basically your deer are going to be, you know, moving more, you know, moving generally how they would move if they were never messed with, I guess is the best way to do it. You, you only see it go into like a full range whenever you see like a really bad storm coming when there's been a, 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 a series of bad storms, then you might see full range movement during the this time of year, but basically a deer are kind of in their comfort spots and they're starting to be budding plants and orbs and stuff like that showing up. So, you know, a lot of times their bedding area has what they need in it and they don't generally leave it until darkness. Right. Um, so yeah, you've got a transition prediction right now. And then you have these little carrots that pop down and explain exactly what you're looking at. And then your pattern is exactly as I would expect it right now too. They're in a normalized pattern to kind of know what they're doing and where they're going and why they're going there. <clears throat> and, and they're not, being um there's not vegetation dropping now when your vegetation starts coming back in your particular area depending on how close we have gps data for your area it'll reflect that and that they will start choosing bedding and leaving their bedding based on what the vegetative cover looks like right so you'll see a change in the pattern and then you know your peak breeding and secondary peak breeding is you know the 14th and the 12th of december And and i say this a lot on a lot of podcasts too and i think i should say it here as well People often reach out to me and say, look, you know, I hunted your peak breeding day and I really didn't see many deer. Um, and I, I, you know, the rut forecast, um, you know, the, the peak breeding date represents when most does will be bred in the area. That's traditionally what people call lockdown. Right. So when, when on November 14th, right, there may be a couple of bucks that haven't paired up with a doe who will be feverishly looking for doe, but the majority of does will be in estrus and ready to stand and mate for a buck. And if you have a skewed buck to doe ratio, you're probably not going to see any bucks those days because all of them will be paired. Only in a balanced herd would you expect to see movement by bucks on that day. It's more, you look like you have something to say, but I'll just quickly say this. Yeah, go ahead. It's more or less 10 days before that date is when you should be looking to see, you know. So we might add something that says like seeking and chasing behavior starts on this date okay. or something like that. Yep. But that, that, that will be another three years of looking through. Uh, as it relates to the rut, how much, you know, as you seeking and chasing is tighter as you get North and looser as you get South. Right. Because of what we talked about before. So sorry. I hope no, you remembered. No, your question. Yeah. I'll yeah. Stop. So like what's funny is if you were to go back to this past year for 2020, that, that weekend of the 14th through the 16th, because we were able to finally hunt on Sunday that weekend, I 
we saw crazy movement where we hunt here in central Pennsylvania uh, like no other. And I know like the previous week, it was a little bit, uh, it wasn't, it was warm, but we didn't see as much. And I know too, back at home where I grew up in Northeast PA, uh, it always seems to be like the rut is a little bit earlier compared to what it is here where I live now in central Pennsylvania. So it's just, it's, it's fascinating because Dimitri always talks about that. He's, he always says, I always feel like the rut here just is a little bit later or it's the middle of November. Like sometimes it, he almost said like that week between archery and rifle, we miss it just because it just like, that was always his thing. And now this year it was like extended. We had that, we were able to hunt that. And it was like the woods were on fire. We just, it was almost too much just because deer were just going nuts and we couldn't get it, get in range uh, of anything this past year. That's awesome. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I mean, that's kind of like, I always think of it as like, it's shaped like the letter M and the, the middle of the M falls on the 14th. So you'll have like, you know, it's really going up, going up on the seeking and chasing. And people think of rut as like when you're going to see bucks being foolish and doing things they normally wouldn't do. Um, But, you know, the technical sense of, you know, bucks are in rut the moment they peel their velvet. Right. They're willing to mate a a doe. And if they smell a hot doe, they're going, which happens in September, that localized herd will be acting like a rutting herd of bucks. They'll, they'll smell her and she'll be at tapes or licking branches looking to get mated and they will be going nuts. So, um, you know, it, it peaks and then it goes down and then it peaks again and then goes down. Um, and that happens very tightly. And then below here is just <clears throat> your last two weeks. And like I said, what you'll be able to do very soon is there'll be buttons up here where you can say, show me the last two weeks, show me the last two months, last three and six months, and then <clears throat> specify a time period. Heck yeah, <laughs> and then it looks like your prevailing wind direction right now, about 15% of the time is Southeast. Yep. Um, and then, you know, you have these other couple spikes in here. It looks like you have some North Northeast and you have some Westerly wind as well. Um, and, and you can all just tell, like, first you can see velocity here. So a way to read this in case someone's never read a polar plot or read a wind rose is on this North Northeast spike, right? It looks like you're at about, um, about eight or 9% of the time, right? Cause it falls right there between six and 12. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then out of that, um, percentage of the time, you have 10 to 15 miles an hour occupies about, uh, I don't know, three or 4% of it. Then you have probably one, one and 1% here um, of the seven to 10 miles an hour, the four to seven miles an hour. And then you have this three to four and two to three, which looks like very close to the middle there. So basically what you have is you have an average wind direction of North Northeast about nine or so percent of the time, 10, maybe eight or 10 or something like that. And you have an average of, probably seven miles an hour. Um, and then, you know, so if you're scouting a place and you want to digitally scout something and like plop some points on the map to go look at a place, what you want to do is you want to look at whenever you're going to go there, like I specified for you, if you're going to go look for some velvet bucks in North Dakota, <clears throat> when that comes up, you just click September and then you'd specify the time hack in September. And then you would look at it and say, okay, in North Dakota in September, it's like, you know, West Northwest, you know, 28% of the time, right. Your number, the longer your time span temporally, the longer you get, the more these numbers become more pronounced. Got so it. you'll see a lot. It'll be, instead of being like the highest one being 15, it'll, it can get into like 60% of the time. In other words, 60% of the time in November in your area, 
it's going to be this north northwest or whatever it is right um it's only over this two week period where you get these less pronounced and then here is just say colleges where you said you were at there yep. about and uh there's your wind directions for the area this is just a very ba basic map so um yeah that's kind of the long and the short of what people get right now um you know what this is useful for right now in the scouting season is minimal it's i guess this wind chart would be what i'd be using the most because i really don't yep. care about spooking here but then when the historical part comes out and, and, and it'll be very soon um then that will help your shed antler hunting and help your scouting for the next season or post rut scouting is what i love to do yep um so yeah and then what what you'll see happen is over the summer this is going to transition into that other piece heck yeah man dude that is so awesome i like i'm I'm really just like floored with what you're able to to do on all this. And like you said, just the analysis and just the data that you were able to include in this is just fascinating to me. Like I I'm actually kind of, kind of speechless, man. It's pretty, pretty good stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's just, for me, I always make the joke and, um, you know, when people go say that, you know, they're pretty excited to go pull a camera that they've maybe soaked for the year or, <clears throat> or they found a new scrape in the middle of the season, they drop a camera on it, and they're, you know, getting their first images or whatever. Right. For me, it's like that times 10 when I get new deer data. <laughs> when I get new deer, GPS collar deer data from yeah. some place that I've either never gotten data from, or I get to compare what the data looked like last year to this year. Mm -hmm. It's like, I can't wait to get in there and, and look at each one of those things and, and kind of see like, how is this buck or this doe well, living its life? And I think too, man, like to, just to be kind like, just to be blunt, you're able to have a conversation with the individual who's developing this. And like, you could be, you're able to give a rationale behind everything and talk about the data that you're pulling and will continue to pull compared to those other, like, again, like you said, not talking bad about other products or anything like that, but you know, I don't know what, what goes in into those that just tells you Hey, spend eight bucks and we're going to tell you if it's a great day to go out in the woods or not. And again, that just is from, for, for who, <laughs> for where, right. and like, it's right. just, it's not, uh, exactly. And for what stand set up. Right. Like what is it going to be good? For, like you're saying it's a great day. Does that mean it's gonna be a great day for the guy who's in the core area and who the guy for the guy who's sitting in the fuel edge? Like, which is it? Right. Like who's having a good day today? Is everyone having a good day? today? <laughs> right. Why? Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and that's, that's the thing that Dimitri just always like it drives him nuts for just because he's like, that doesn't make sense for me. You know what I mean? And I know that's why I'm, I'm bummed out that he missed this one just because I know he would have, uh, I, he nerds out on this stuff. And I, I think, uh, yeah, man, I, I'm telling you, this is, I'm excited. Um, I know what I'll be doing tomorrow. <laughs> hey, sweet. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, and for your listeners too, I'll just let you know, if you send me like a code or if you want to, if you have a code that you usually use, you can say it right now Okay. and I'll just type it in tonight so that if users of yours want to sign up for it, we'll give them 25% off. Okay. Um, and if they sign up, like we're going to raise probably a buck or two. Yeah. Just because when we host the historical data we're throwing 30 years of weather data online yeah and then we're making it available to everyone so we might raise the price a dollar right. or whatever it costs for those storage fees um and then the access to the api that provides it all um so uh that price for them will never go anywhere um as Sweet. we when we go into the app portion right yeah all they'll have to do is download it from the app store and put in their email and their mm. password that they set when they signed up online and they'll Sweet. be in like Flynn. Nice. Just like they were before. Awesome, man. Well, let's use uh let's just use Antler up. 
That'll be Antler up. Okay. Yeah. So when I get off, I'll, I'll send you a text whenever I have it up and then uh, uh, your guys can go sign up. I'm sure by the time you drop this podcast, yeah. I'll have it ready to go by then. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like the, the, the long and the short of all of that capability and what, what I'm doing and where we're going. Awesome, Bill. Dude, man, I appreciate you coming on and I can't wait to uh, do another one. Like, like absolutely anytime dude. Um, i mean if, if dimitri comes back on you guys want to do a nerd out session yeah i'm happy to throw up some buck gps um on the map there and just kind of let people you know some interesting ones that i can think of off the top of my head and yeah yeah i'll have to absolutely. uh have you talked to any of the individuals up at penn state because i know they have a uh like a- yeah i have but it was a couple of years ago um, and they didn't seem keen cause they were trying to develop their own movement models at the time. And I'm yeah. not sure they were quite sure what I was trying to do. Yeah. Basically what I talk, what I offer these centers of academic academia is I say, look, I've got a model predicts this. Well, I'm willing to, um, compare it to my model, let you know how well it trained against what we exist, how well it trains against what we existed currently have right and then what the differences are and then any interesting data points about their data mm-hmm. and 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 then usually say look and for any of your studies or anything like that i'll give you 50 more hours of data or 50 more hours of um of engineering on that data right so if they're going to come up with something new and usually academics are all about that um i think at the time maybe i just hadn't sold it well but i do plan on reaching back out to them because i have some pennsylvania data but um, I want, I know I need a lot more, right. especially the mountain data. Yep. So I definitely will be reaching out to them again, but uh, yeah. Yeah, man, dude, that's awesome. Well, I know we talked about it, but you know, where could people find more information about Spartan Forge and uh, you know, and all that uh, information? So um, you can just go to www.spartanforge.ai um, or you can look for us on Instagram. It's just spartan.forge. And then we're, we follow you as well. So yep. if your listeners obviously probably follow you on Instagram, they can get to us through there. And the last thing I should say before we uh, we um, cut the podcast out is um, with Chris Ham and HHA, yeah. they are going to sponsor some, um, they're going to throw in some prize packages. We're doing a veterans hunt in Pennsylvania, right in your neck of the woods. Sweet. Um, have I talked to you about this yet? No, not yet, but I'm excited okay, now. So in, in the Allegheny, we're going to be doing a veterans hunt. And what we're going to do is launch a, a raffle, essentially, that's going to operate through our Instagram. And what users will do is, um, and I'm not, I can't get into all of it, because yep. 90% of it's done. Um, so I can talk to mostly what's done, but uh, waiting for some signature on the line from other people. But HHA is already in this with us, so I can talk about that association. But there are also a lot of other very big name companies that people will recognize right away who are going to throw down money and, and, and prizes as part of our package. But basically what will happen is you'll, you'll, you'll sign up for the outfitter. You'll use a, a, a discount code to get a heavy discount on it. Um, and then you will take some buddies who will do the same thing. You'll be, if you sign up for it yourself, you'll get one entry. If you take some buddies, you'll get two entries. Um, and then what will happen is we will do a raffle um, in July, in June or July. Okay. Maybe a little later, but I'm aiming for June or July. The winners of the raffle will get paired with our pro staff, um, and they'll be able to do five digital scouting sessions online. And they can either choose to hunt with us over Veterans Day weekend in um, the Allegheny uh, National Forest up there, nice. just north of you. Yep. Um, so we've got uh, my, bud, my bud, John Stewart, who's also our pro staffer with us, um, has been gracious enough. I had an Airbnb cabin, but he said, no, we'll do it at my cabin. So we're going to host everyone at his cabin. 
there'll be six winners. Um, currently, I'm thinking, thinking six winners. They'll have the option of either dealing with the pro staffer if they can't make it out to Pennsylvania, but they want to hunt their public grounds with them. And they'll get six sessions, five six sessions with the pro staffer. They'll do digital scouting. We're going to send them. We've I can't say the company yet, but we've made some deals with some camera companies who have cellular cameras. We'll send them some cellular camera cameras. We're going to send them some camo. We're going to send them some sites. Um, either a tree stand or a saddle. They're going to be... Um, paired up with that pro staffer and, and try to get them on some deer digitally um, working with them, you know, unless they're in close proximity and they can go together for everyone else who wants to participate in the veterans hunt. If they win, they will show up with us that weekend of, um, of uh, uh, veterans day. And we're going to be in that cabin. We're going to have a camera crew out there. We're going to have some veterans and then the winners, we're going to have them all paired up with their pro staff that they've been working with over the last few months. You know, Johnny and I and a couple of other guys will put the cameras out in the woods for them. Some of the cameras will be cellular enabled. So, well, you know, you yeah. and the guy will digitally scout a place. We'll go put a camera there for you. And then you guys can report back on what you see or not see or where you want it moved. Go get those five sessions and then get ready for an actual hunt that yeah, weekend. Awesome. So, um, you know, uh, the only guy right currently right now who won't be there will be Andy May. Um, cause he's a teacher and he can't get the time <laughs> off, but we, what we will do is just pair him with another guy who says, or gal who says, I can't make it out to Pennsylvania. Um, then I'll be like, all right, you're working with Andy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I see that as a, a good way to create awareness, um, for the outfitter and to kind of put some people, um, who maybe are thinking about hunting or not sure, or new to hunting or just want who have been hunting forever and want one-on-one -on -one time with one of our pro staff to get them going. But then all of the money that we generate as a company from people signing up and using that code, <clears throat> the overwhelming majority, probably something like 70% of that money <clears throat> will be going to, um, to benefit a company that we work with called the boot campaign yep. that does, um, uh, raises money for, uh, vet veterans who have visible and invisible wounds. Mm -hmm. So, awesome. um, with all that money, we'll cut a check and, and send it to them. And the reason I say 70% and not hundred percent is, just there'll be AWS costs associated with people signing up. And, you know, if we do get a lot of signups, um, <clears throat> I won't want to have to write a check from my own checking account <laughs> to, uh, right. So people who sign up will basically paying for their own compute. And then the rest of that money will be going to the, the veterans campaign boot campaign. So we're looking to organize a lot of money. And I think tonight is the first podcast where I've actually been able to talk about the boot campaign. Cause I think we just got signed or we did just get signed. So, um, yeah, yeah you know, I, I see it as an opportunity for me to kind of give back from where I came, um, create awareness for ourselves and a bunch of other great products that are out there, but then ultimately get this money back to people who need it. Beautiful, man, dude, I, anything that we could do, I know I've, obviously we don't have to talk right now, but, uh, that's something that I would love to, to be involved in for sure. So absolutely. Uh, and you're right there. So yep. it makes sense. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Man. Well, dude, I appreciate you coming on and for all the time and the wisdom. And I, again, I'm, I'm excited for the next one already. So everybody go give Bill uh, check that out with Spartan Forge and uh, go sign up. And uh, until next time, Antler up. And that's a wrap for another episode of the Antler Up podcast. And I would like to thank you so much for checking us out. And be sure to head over to antlerupoutdoors.com. Check out our Facebook and Instagram or YouTube. We love the support. Turkey season's happening pretty soon, and uh, hopefully you're sighting in those shotguns and getting the little ones ready for youth hunt and uh, enjoying some great time out in the outdoors fishing as well. So thanks again, everybody. Antler up.